This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome aboard, folks. One more time. We've had a series. These last several guests have been just outstanding in terms of personal development, in terms of how you take yourself from where you were to where you're going to be. I mean, it's just, it's just so interesting. Uh, two episodes ago, we had a whole discussion about how we can help our kids do that. The episode just before this, we had a, a gentleman come on who has worked with you know some of the best thought leaders in the country. He's written a book on personal development and entrepreneurship. And now we have the, we have Alexia Vernon, and this is going, you're going to get a kick out of this because it sounds a little gender specific for you guys who are listening to this, but it's not gender specific. She's the author of Step Into Your Moxie, and we're going to talk more about that in just a second after I have a couple of words from our sponsor. Thanks for coming on, Alexia. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So what we're going to do is Core Brain Journal is supported by Great Plains Laboratory. They are deep international biomedical testing leaders for improved targeted mind science details. You know, here at Core Brain Journal, we are into the details. As both laboratory and webinar global thought leaders, they provide the most comprehensive set of hard data measurement tools for real biomedical answers beyond guesswork. They are complimentary. They're there at the website. And they also provide multiple important training webinars for both the public and medical providers on how to use their biomedical data effectively in the offices globally. Check out their website for references and testing details. And take note, this is an important point, folks. You can go in there and register for a complimentary test drawing. And they will give you a reading on the test as well. So they're really interested in having you come over there and get connected with them. And the tests have, they're high value items. They're not inexpensive tests. They're useful tests. And they tell you they're very, one of my favorite words is utilitarian. They're great. So going over to Great Plains Laboratory, that's Plains with an S, greatplainslaboratory.com forward slash CBJ for Core Brain Journal and sign up for the tests that they have up and available there. You will be pleased at that opportunity. So let me tell you about Alexia. First of all, she is going to be so interesting because she's got a great sense of humor. We talked a little bit right before we got started and get the title of the book. I mean, can you think about somebody who is going to be totally serious who says the book's title is Step Into Your Moxie? And she's branded, get this, as a moxie maven. I love the maven concept. By get this, President Obama's White House Office of Public Engagement. She is a sought-after speaking and leadership coach who delivers transformational keynotes and corporate trainings for Fortune 500 companies and other professional groups and organizations, including, get this, the United Nations and TEDx. Alexia holds a graduate and undergraduate degrees in both women's studies and has been featured on CNN, NBC, ABC, and CBS, and in publications like Forbes Women, Women's Health, and the European Business Review. So you want to visit her online presence at alexiavernon.com. We'll talk more about that later. Alexia, you have been around the beach. I mean, (laughs) 
Thank you for that. I've been up to this for a while and Uh, there's nothing I'd rather be doing with my life than in my work. I mean, it's fantastic. So let's start with how you got started. I think everybody wants the, a little bit of there of the, of the narrative of how did this person who has been in all these really key inspirational places, I mean, to go in to be hooked up with President Obama's White House, that must have been a very interesting thing. We'll talk more about that in a second, but how did you get started? That's the question. What made you go down that path? Yes. So I realized about a decade ago that I had spent most of my life up until that point in what I would call an on-again, off-again relationship with my own voice. And what I mean by that is I was a perpetual people pleaser. Mm-hmm. One moment, I might feel like I was tap dancing on eggshells, striving to be liked, to give the right answers, to not be called out for failing to be enough of whatever I conjectured other people wanted me to be. However, at the same time, I also had a tremendous desire to puff up and to perform and to be seen and to be able to make impact. And in my career, I was not doing a very good job navigating between both of those things. I had a tremendous fear of public speaking, even though being a public speaker was a huge piece of what my business was about. However, I was always flip-flopping what I was talking about. If I thought people wanted me to talk about millennials as an older millennial, that's what I would position myself as. If I thought that people needed me to talk about how do you future-proof your career when the recession happened, then I would go off in that direction. And I finally realized that none of those things was what I really wanted to be known for, not that there was anything wrong with those topics, but they weren't me. Mm -hmm. And I had that awakening, if you will, while giving a keynote speech. I arrive a little bit early to this social enterprise conference where I was the closing keynote speaker in time for a pitch fest that everybody who was in attendance was participating in. And each of the approximately 120-somethings who were there had a couple of minutes to present their big idea for how to harness entrepreneurial solutions to solve a big social, economic, or environmental problem. And the pitches were all great. The finalists were announced. And every single one of them was male. In a room full of approximately 120-somethings, the room was 50% female, 50% male. Uh That one woman's voice was picked. And I share this, and it has significance not just for women who are listening, but also for men. Because, well, first, I started to ask questions to figure out what had happened and why were there no women's voices that were being elevated to finalist status. Mm -hmm. Both the women in the room and the men really said the same things that they had picked based on who took up space, who projected confidence, what we would call a more masculine leadership style. And yet Mm -hmm. when I asked who were the speakers that you felt most connected to, whose ideas you would want to champion, almost everybody started naming women. Why? When I push back, because they were humble. They, in some cases, were admitting they still had a lot to learn before their ideas could be successful, but that wasn't, of course, perceived to be good leadership. And that's when I started to reflect on the fact that I had been one of those women in that audience for a long time. I had discounted my natural speaking style. I didn't know how to harness the masculine and the feminine together, which we all need to be a really effective speaker or really effective leader. And so that's when I pivoted my business to focus do a lot of work with women, but I also work with men who want to be able to be vulnerable, tell powerful stories, and at the same time, move people to action with their ideas. You know, it's so funny when you first said it, it's happened to me because I've done a lot of uh, speaking myself, that you're in this whole mode and you're doing it and you're making your points and all of a sudden you have this thought right there. It's not, 
you didn't prepare it, but you're just free associating on it. Yeah. Now, let me just tell you this, and it sort of comes to your mind. And you, so, did it come to your mind while you were, in fact, doing a presentation, or did it come to your It did. Okay. Before I went on, and I went a little rogue. I can't remember what I said, but I can guarantee it was not what I had planned. <laughs> and I went home after that, and I said, I want to pivot how I'm coaching individuals, how I'm working with organizations, what I want to call my keynotes. Now, I want to be super honest about the fact that going into that, I'd had this idea for something called Step Into Your Moxie. I, those words came to me. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what that would look like. After that incident, that's when it came together. That, that's the brand. Yeah. You have to have something that's kind of in your face to then conceptualize it and wrap your arms around it. And then with bingo, then you got it and you can see it. And it's just so street savvy. Thank it's you. like all of a sudden you're in the street. This is where everybody is. So did you actually say something about Moxie and step into your Moxie in your presentation? I don't remember that. I know yeah. what I definitely talked about even if the messaging, the branding wasn't there, was mm -hmm. what are we doing wrong as 20-somethings? And I was a, old, a little bit older than that at the time, but I said mm -hmm. that we are at an event where we're talking about how to disrupt the way charitable donations happen. Because this was a social enterprise conference. So these yeah. were people who wanted to harness entrepreneurial solutions to solve a big social, economic, or environmental problem. Mm -hmm, we can mm -hmm. talk about race as we were at that event. We can talk about globalism. We can talk about power and privilege, yet there's some funky gender stuff that's going on here that is negatively impacting all of us. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. That's, I mean, I, I love the word moxie. I'm a country boy. I was raised out. We, we had picking cotton and bale and hay when I was a kid northern Indiana and Missouri, but I went medical school and all my professional training was for years in Philadelphia. So I was a country boy who came into the big city. And I remember the people using phrases like that. It was just such a... Because Did you ever drink moxie soda growing up? No, I didn't even know. I didn't know there's a, there is a moxie soda. There is. So sidebar, I talk about this a little bit in the book. What I didn't know originally that there was this thing called moxie soda. I knew the word, but of course, if you're going to use a word, you should study the etymology and right, learn right. about any pop cultural <laughs> history. So there was a doctor, Dr. Augustine Thompson, back in the 1880s, who created this patent for moxie soda. And the promise was that if you drink this stuff, and of course, it's sugar water, but if you drink this stuff, it was supposed to make you a rugged individualist, give you confidence. And it was used as a medical tonic for that regard. And I thought, well, although this is bogus, and I'd like to say <laughs> that my ideas are not, they're actually they work. This idea that there could be this formula that would somehow empower your moxie that fit in as crazy and wacky as it was to the brand story that I want. No, I think, I think it's just great because I wouldn't say it's wacky at all because I think moxie is a very... It's a word. I think words are so helpful in terms of what can I connect with. And it has a certain level, oddly, of sophistication to it. Yeah. Somebody's talking maybe about it. Yeah. I was going to say, maybe it would be helpful for listeners for how I describe it. Please. So to me, stepping into your moxie means that you have the capacity to walk into any room or onto any stage. You can present your ideas without apology, knowing that they will move people to take action. And I love that word again, because it really, it's not just about mindset. It's definitely a way of thinking. It's also a way of feeling and a way of behaving. 
that is somewhat disruptive in a good way. It's about not taking the status quo and just accepting it, but really being unapologetic about speaking your truth in a way mm-hmm. that is kind and compassionate and powerful. Yeah, I like that whole concept of, as a recovering nice guy, I think I've been too involved with apologies. I think because it weakens your position, you're dancing too much. You don't really take the position. And I mean, I love that word unapologetic. So in your book, do you have a system for that or how does it, how does it actually come to you that you organize your thoughts around that? Because it's as a global idea, as a large idea, it has significance. And how do you actually get down to actionable details? So the way that I organize the book is the first third is really looking at shifting mindset. And we can talk more about that in a moment. The second section of the book is looking at what are some of the strategic and then even going more micro, what are some of the tactical ways to be able to dial up your moxie in the various communication contexts we all want to be powerful in, whether that is giving a presentation, whether that is negotiating, having a sales conversation, setting or rearticulating a boundary, or having a daring conversation with someone in our professional or personal life. And then the third section of the book, those chapters are really looking at legacy. How do you make sure that on your own leadership journey, when there are things that might get in the way and disconnect you from your moxie, that you're resilient? And how are you ensuring that the way you're speaking up each and every day through your professional life, in your community life, in your own family or religious institution, is playing a role in leaving the legacy that you want to leave behind. That sounds like character. I was trying to think of a word for it, but I mean, that's a simple word. I mean, you're like saying either you're internally a character in tune with yourself completely on a almost molecular level, or you're fringy and you're edgy with yourself, which is just going to play an old show. Ouch. So then those are really three very important points. I mean, you're really talking about the entire tour of a person's life. Yes. And what their basic contribution is. And the mindset stuff is deep. So for a lot of your listeners who are not strangers to self-development, they're probably thinking, okay, how is this any different than a lot of the stuff that I've been told before in terms of self-talk or mantras or mindfulness or anything else. And I like to say that it's complementary, obviously. Uh, I'm not discounting all of the things that have come before me and informed me. But oftentimes when we think about self-improvement, we don't look at the communication component. And truthfully, when I started doing my work with folks, I would often focus on how do you give a great presentation? How do you tell a story? How do you need people to take action? How do you overcome resistance? And yet, until I did the deep work with people around how they were communicating with themselves, all of the other stuff never stuck. In every moment of our lives, there's a communication component. Even Mm -hmm. if we're not saying anything, we're saying a heck of a lot to ourselves. And particularly for those who might say that they are quiet, whether that gets labeled introvert or people pleaser or shy. And there's so many strategies and techniques to be able to rewrite that story we're telling ourselves about who we can be as a communicator that lays the foundation for us to be able to speak up and out in all the other contexts of our lives. So true. So well said. Thank you. I mean, that's just... That, that's like I wrote a book on it or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you say it and, and, you know, I think really good speakers can actually speak in paragraphs with no hesitation. Here's a paragraph on that and it's all going to hang together. Did you get it? <laughs> 
it wasn't that lengthy, but I just think it's, you really did hold together very well. As, as you, you made me think of something, and that's why. So obviously folks can't see us, but we can see each other. So you're mm-hmm. reading some of my facial cues. What would it be like? And this is a place where for the most part, I'm really there. And that's why life is so juicy now. But what would it be like for all of us if we stopped wondering, am I going to get in trouble? Am I going to disappoint? Am I going to get it right when we opened our mouth? And instead, we focus solely on who is the person or who are the people that we're trying to connect with and trusted that if that was our focus for everything that we said, that whatever came out of our mouths would be right because it would be about them and not about us and our own ego. So well said. You don't need the book. Work with that. I'm kidding. (laughs) That's, I think, what a lot of us have to get to a point. And for some people, it happens early. For others of us, it takes longer to get to that place of shedding the need for approval and validation, unhooking from both praise and critique, and focusing on the impact we want to make, how we want people to be able to hear us and then showing up and being present, whatever's coming out of us in pursuit of that goal. I mean, it's like you've been listening to the things that I've been listening to in terms of training people to podcast. They have this whole thing in podcasting. You know, if you're going to be doing a presentation, and these are the guys that are multimillionaire podcaster people. Now, you're going to do a presentation, have in mind who that person is, who that archetype is that you're going to be speaking to. And always keep that in your mind because when you're speaking, I may be speaking to you as a person over here, but I've got to remember that other person is over there right next to you or just behind you that has that. And, I, and one of the, the archetypes that I've always thought was important was women, which is your thing. Because what happens is I think women are so powerful in terms of the evolution of humankind with babies keeping the husband squared away keeping the home fires burning and really putting out fires that are emotionally driven very frequently because they're, they have more intuition. They more have a sense of the larger order, generally speaking, not always, but I mean, generally speaking, I was always thinking that the person that I would be speaking to is sitting next to you is a somewhere between uh, 28 and like 38 year old woman with two kids and a busy husband. And if I talk to her, that that's going to be an important, because if she gets me and she listens to me, that's going to be the contribution I'm going to make, because that person does get it and will share it with friends and will actually grow from that experience. Whereas it's really an easier audience, because that audience is is a listening audience, generally speaking. How you describe the way that you think about podcasting is very much the way that I work with speakers on keynotes or traditional business presentations as well, that it's so easy to get focused on all of the information we want to communicate rather than speaking to the conversation in the heads of our listeners. Mm -hmm. Good marketing, if you want to write good marketing copy, but it's also great communication strategy with respect to the spoken word. And one of the things that drives me bonkers is I hear all of the time, think about your customer avatar and it's all of the external stuff. Two kids, they live in Denver, Colorado. They listen to this radio station rather than what's the psychographic? What are their fears? Mm-hmm. What are their desires? What keeps yeah. them up at night? What do they well wish said. someone would tell them that nobody is? What's the question they want to be asked? And when you speak to that, that's true influence. That's how you get somebody to really 
listen to what it is that you're saying and when they feel seen and validated, ultimately want to take action on what it is that you're proselytizing. So well said. I mean, that's just terrific, you know, and I think it does, it is transgender. It doesn't, it isn't a moxie woman thing. I mean, no, that's how we communicate irrespective of gender. If Mm -hmm. we're really strategic. Yeah, that's so true. So do you actually, besides the book, do you do teaching, you do consultation with individuals or do you run groups or what, what do you do professionally in that regard? Yes, a little bit of all of those things. So I do a lot of keynotes and speeches and corporate training and workshops where I travel and deliver those on site. Mm-hmm. And then I am entrepreneurial at my core as well. So I have an online speaker coaching training program. I run a mastermind for female entrepreneurs who want to amplify their speaking to grow their businesses. And then I also work intensively over the course of a day with somebody, usually who is a speaker to develop all of their content, to get it ready, to help them market themselves as a speaker as well. Yeah, that's great. It's great because you can do the Zoom thing anywhere. You know, you can do, you can talk to them over in Dubai, you know, whatever. And that works out really, really well. Well, tell us about your experience in the White House, if you don't mind. I'm sure a lot of us would be curious. I certainly am curious about it. How did all that work out? How did it? Yes. So let me be super clear. I didn't actually, I've been to the White House as a tourist. I wasn't Mm -hmm. in the White House to get that acknowledgement. Rather, somebody from the Office of Public Engagement had covered some of the work that I was doing, happened to be in New York City at the time. Mm -hmm. So they wrote a profile. It went on the blog and they named the profile itself something, something Moxie Maven. And that's where I extracted that phrase from. (laughs) That's great. Yeah, I think the the word maven is such a great word. I, I love it. You know, it's it's kind of a Philadelphia term. I jokingly tell people in Philly. I mean, it's I, you know, it has a certain implication of mm-hmm. intelligence and community. As soon as you say maven, like, okay, this person not only is intelligent, but they're in a certain community of people that appreciate intelligence and mm-hmm. insightful thought. You know, so did, you didn't actually go there, but you you had. Did that particular experience bring you any business? What happened with that? It did. And every part of our work plays a role in our biography. So I know, for example, that after I spoke at the UN during the Commission on the Status of Women, that specific instance in terms of people in the room didn't bring me something, but somebody found me online and said, my dream was always to speak at the United Nations. I Googled speaking coach, woman, what did she tell me? Uh, United Nations Commission on the Status of Women, and you popped up. And I thought, well, if she could speak there and she's a speaking coach, she could help me achieve my speaking dreams as well. Good for you. That's interesting. So you knocked on the door, you did a little cold calling. Uh, Well, in that case, she found me through her own search terms. Oh, that's great. So, so, so we're going to come back in just a second. We're going to take a little break here, and we're going to have a little uh, mid-roll word from our sponsors. But I'm going to tell you what I'm going to ask about, because I think based on what we're, where this conversation is going, that would be a very interesting thing for you to share with our audience a little bit, what that message was, because that is a global message. That's going to be a very large message, and, and I know I would like to hear it, and I know our listeners would like to hear it. So we come back, we're going to ask you about that message to the UN conference that, on that occasion. So folks, we will be back in just a moment. Today, the world of mind, science, psychiatry, and mental health is rapidly changing with innovative, comprehensive testing that takes both patients and practitioners into a new world of measured details. 
with useful, understandable, and remarkably actionable plans. The key phrase here is cost-effective. Testing also introduces a key parallel word, predictability. Psychiatric treatment failure, especially after multiple medications and our brief hospitalizations, arises directly from the complexity of measurable brain-body imbalances and impediments that explicitly interfere with medical outcomes and create costly difficulties with inadequately informed supplement and medication trials over time. Great Plains provides a leadership team of biomedical experts with advanced laboratory insights approved nationally both by the FDA and CLIA laboratory certifications and is available internationally for both public and medical professionals. Great Plains Laboratory is the primary laboratory we've used at CoreSite for years with excellent customer service for both patients and medical colleagues. They are on the spot, they get it every time. In addition, they provide exemplary training modules, which are webinars and conferences, in an effort to broaden practice perspectives wherever you live. Do follow up on one of these complimentary test offers today at http greatplainslaboratory.com forward slash cbj yeah that's core brain journal cbj well folks we're back with alexia vernon we've had a very interesting conversation about the evolution of your message and indeed your entire personality because what alexia is talking about here is that if we really think about who we are our contribution, whatever we leave for a legacy, is going to be more clear and endure than if we are having some other more superficial, less valued position. And so one of the things we were taught, we took a break here, but we were talking about her experience speaking to the UN. And it would, and could you just tell us about that experience? And, and then also, I would love to hear what your message was. So the opportunity arose, and this is one of those examples of being present and over-delivering on people's expectations in any experience that you're in. And what I mean by that is it wasn't something I applied for. It was a call I got from one of my former students who had been in the very first cohort of the very first online program I read, ran, excuse me. And she was connected to an NGO that was putting together this event during the Commission on the Status of Women and said, I think you would be a perfect speaker. We want the gig. Yeah. Absolutely. Even though like so many of my speaking gigs, it was wildly inconvenient. I had tickets with my mom. I'd given her for Christmas to Yanni in Las Vegas the night before. So I had to fly out on a red eye. (laughs) Important speeches of my life. Fly back (laughs) home because I had another training in Las Vegas the next day. So it was nuts. Oh my gosh. And the presentation was a TED style talk, meaning it was short. I want to say eight to 10 minutes with a very clear idea worth spreading. And the focus Mm -hmm. was on the missing ingredient in women's leadership. And from my vantage point, which this is, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. ingredient is role play. And let me explain. It's something I talk a lot about in the book, that it's one thing to speak about what it is that you think people need to do differently. But if it's behavioral, habit, skill related, people are likely not going to take what you've said, even if you give them great experiences and take it off the page and translate it into action, unfortunately. What I know from having led training programs, and that's what my first career was, leading professional development training programs, is if we really want people to shift their mindset, their skill set, develop habits, we have to give them opportunities to get up on their feet 
and to role play what it is that we want them to imprint into permanence. So with respect to communication and women's leadership, that means if you want women to have difficult conversations, make them daring ones, role play that, give them real time behavior-based feedback so that they know what works and they can shift what doesn't. If you want women to be more effective presenters, develop their presence, give them opportunities to do that in real world situations that align with what they're gonna be tasked to do in their actual role and give them feedback. So when I was in college, I was very into theater and improv. I was wretched at improv. (laughs) Nonetheless, I showed up to my classes, I did what I could, and I had an improv teacher who was a woman. Finally, it took a while for that to happen. And we were having a conversation. Actually, I brought her into one of my women's studies classrooms to talk to my whole class about women and bodies and performance. And we had this interesting conversation where she shared, I think the reason why there's this not true, but there's a stereotype that women are not as funny as men or that improv, it's a, it's a dude's show. <laughs> if you think about what makes a good improviser, which is actually very different than a comic, but what makes a good improviser is someone who will follow their instincts in the moment, not get stuck in their head, use their bodies, not censor themselves because of their fear that they might be too much or not enough, which Mm -hmm. skews masculine leadership. But if you look at what makes women successful, it's actually that rehearsal. It's solidifying those behaviors and doing it again and again in a safe way until the judgment melts away. And Mm -hmm. so that's what we know. Then we have a responsibility. If any of us are interested in our own leadership development or developing other leaders, particularly if they're female, to give that necessary rehearsal and role play time. Alexia, that is so cool. Now, right next to that whole concept is your fascination with animals, okay? (laughs) (laughs) I think I know where you're going with this one. (laughs) We're going to talk about the animal situation because it's so graphic and so useful, and I think it's so valuable that apropos of just what you were saying, a person needs, okay, so you were talking about it, but still the issue is, what does that human being do when she gets on the stage? And this is not a content point. This is a personal point. Please elaborate on the animals and so on, because I think you have some really good notes on that. Through the work that I've done, I identified two typical archetypes that emerge for women who are stepping into leadership. One is the archetype that's embodied by a bunny. And a bunny is when we try to people please, or we apologize, we don't take up space, we're quiet, we're soft, we're cuddly, or if you think of playboy bunnies, overtly using sexuality to try to gain favor. And while as women sometimes, and to be fair, these are also archetypes that men can play into, but when we're doing that, we are disconnecting from our power and we are making ourselves dismissible, whether we're trying to do that or more often than not, we're not. On the other side of the spectrum, then, is the dragon, the antithesis of the bunny. And this is the stereotype of a woman so disconnected from her feminine power that she's almost hyper, if not cartoonish, in her performance of masculinity. So it's my way or the highway. Don't ask me any questions. I know what I'm doing. Very sort of short statements, staccato. People feel intimidated to ever express their own opinions around somebody who is going dragon. But the thing is, is that they're both byproducts of really the same interconnected issues, a habit of contorting oneself to who you think others want you to be, whether you're a leader, an employee, a business owner, a partner, a child, and also a fear of dropping the mask that you might be performing behind 
and this belief that you must keep up that facade of either excessive likability or excessive toughness. And so what I talk about in the book is another archetype available to all of us, which is the archetype of the cheetah. And for those who didn't watch a lot of Animal Planet growing up, like I did in my <laughs> the cheetah has got it going on. Yeah. So if you think about a cheetah, she or he tends to be very flexible. So the cheetah as an animal can accelerate faster than any other animal in the wild. And yet cheetahs often don't take advantage of that. They'll hold back, they'll watch, they'll let other animals feed first. And then when it feels like it's their right time, then they're in it to win it. One of the other things I love about cheetahs, there's so much, we could talk about this all day, is that they have permanent tear marks imprinted on their faces. Oh, is so that right? I missed that. When it comes to emotions, I love the archetype because to me it represents not being apologetic for the fact that we are feeling creatures. It doesn't mean that we have to be ruled by our emotions, but they are one of the ways that we make meaning in the world. It's one of the ways that we can shape the communication that we're going to use and that we can use empathy. We can use vulnerability as a way to move people to action. I mean, that is so cool. I have to tell you, uh, I wrote a book long ago called Deep Recovery. And my dichotomy group was the Lone Ranger and the helpless victim because the Lone Ranger would be, you know, the dragon that's going to save the world. And I'm really here to save you. So I'm going to have to breathe some flames all over you. And I do have a gun and I'm not going to talk to you. I'm going to be isolated and alone because this is a, a lonely task. And you have to do what I'm telling you to do because I am trying to take care of you. you know, so there's a certain manipulative element it was really very similar, but I think guilt runs both of these. And I'll tell you real quickly why. The person who's being the dragon is really trying to manipulate from the idea of you're doing the wrong thing. You need to feel guilty about what you're doing and you really need to shape up because if you don't shape up, you're going to destroy humanity in some way. And interestingly enough, the bunny, the helpless victim person, is also trying to manipulate through guilt because they're saying, look, if you don't do what I'm telling you. You're going to hurt me even more. I'm already hurt. I'm in this vulnerable situation and I'm trying to help you out, but it's going to bother me deeply and I'm going to have even more pain. So if you have any kind of contrition, and it wouldn't be contrition on your part, but if you have any kind of thought about me and my potential demise, then you're going to have to move very quickly because it'll prevent me from being in even more pain. And both of them are actually manipulating through guilt, but they're using affect and emotions. Your cougar person is quiet, demure. Actually, while you were presenting it, now folks, I get a chance to see Alexia in action, and she has a certain cougar-esque, cheetah-esque activity about her. Her pacing, her smooth, her movements, she's like out there in the Transvaal, you know, looking at things and thinking about things. Honestly, you do kind of, you know, you've, you've embodied it in a certain way. And I mean that all due respect. I mean, but I think, it's, I think it's great because you have that internal confidence in your overall presentation. And just Thanks. looking at you, it's too bad that the listeners couldn't actually see you because you do such a great job of managing yourself, even in an ordinary conversation and breathing and thinking about things. And then, and then your delivery and your timing is, is so cheetah-esque, if, it, if you will. That's anyway, a good thing. Like Otherwise, that. people would listen to this and say, walk your talk, woman. <laughs> no, you're doing a great job, really. I mean, I think the moxie is really there because of your 
intelligent confidence. I think that's what's really important is, and that's what the cheetah is. Whereas the helpless victim or the dragon are both in insecure. They're so insecure, they can't deliver their message. And they're trying to make you feel guilty for making them feel insecure. Mm-hmm. Instead of, look, let's get business done. And I'm not insecure. You needn't be insecure. Let's work together and get it done. And they're really exhausting places to be because we're doing all of this thinking about how other people are thinking about us rather than focusing on the message that we want to share and then getting out of our own way and sharing it. Yeah, there's some important political figures who could <laughs> well <laughs> listen, listen to this message. Yes, no question about it, which we won't go into. No, but I mean, I will say, because I've been asked this question a lot, this is a really interesting moment historically to be having these kinds of conversations. So true. Irrespective of what your politics are, because so true. truthfully, you know, I don't care. Go, if you're in the United States listening, go vote the way that you want to vote in, yeah, yeah. in 2018 and make your voice heard. And hopefully if you're in another country, you have the opportunity to vote. That's not something that we can take for granted because that isn't a possibility in a lot of places. But certainly here in the United States, there's a lot of conversation right now about gender. Mm-hmm. And about telling our stories and having them move people to take action the way that we want. Mm-hmm. And whether women and men have the same opportunities to tell their stories and, and be believed. And mm-hmm. for me, this work is also very personal because I had a very early experience of being believed by some and not being believed by others when I spoke up and told my parents that I was being sexually abused. And the reason I bring this up is because I was four years old at the time, four and a half years old. And there were some people in my family who believed exactly what I said, who sought to protect me. And the takeaway from their behavior was that when I spoke, people listened and that that's significant. But then there were other people in my life who didn't know how to make sense of the information I communicated, particularly since the abuse was happening in my family and felt like, if they believed me and if they took action, that meant turning away from the other family member who I think I can objectively say was a good person who had some bad habits born out of his own experiences. And um, for a lot of years, I know that the playing small and safe and wanting to be liked was being terrified of the power I actually thought that I had watching all of these complicated family dynamics unfold. Mm-hmm. And so, I want to say to folks that I get that it might feel like easy lip service to say, speak your truth, go out into the world, be unapologetic. But like, let's be honest, what happens when people don't listen or worse, they take action in a way that you don't want? Because that's a part of this conversation too, is how do you stand in your character to use something that you said earlier and know that even in those moments where your words don't have the impact that you want them to, that if you operated in alignment with your own values, if your reasoning for speaking up was truly for the greater good and not for self-aggrandizing, mm-hmm. it's actually an opportunity to cultivate resiliency rather than to think or to create that story, I should never speak up again. Well, and I think another thing that's so relevant, forgive me for putting my psychiatric hat on for a second. Well, I, but, I would expect it. <laughs> but I think, your words are so you're you're so well spoken in, in this situation. The issue is also one of uh, cathartic emotionalism, which is considered to be healthy. 
I mean, I think one of the things that happens is individuals who are upset have a misinterpretation psychiatrically that if I'm actually, uh, that by being cathartic in my affective expression, I'm being authentic. And so they don't know how to find the authenticity that you're suggesting in terms of who they are as a person. But they're going to be authentic in some other way by having real feelings instead of having a real message. Mm. They they haven't developed the message internally. But I know if I scream and shout, it's going to say something about where I am, but it actually diminishes their authority because they're in that game of manipulation through guilt as opposed to what's the negotiation strategy, what are the things on the table right here, and how do we actually correct the situation, which is more the cheetah position. Mm -hmm. So, and that whole catharsis thing, I think you were, you said this a moment ago, I kind of thought you were going to go there, but I completely agree with you. We're in a cathartic moment in our society where everybody's expressing who they are, trying to achieve a certain measure of authority through apparent authenticity to the untrained Mm -hmm. by discharging affect. You know, it's sort of like it's the whole game for who you are as a person. And if you're doesn't matter whether you're in a leadership position or a uh, journalist interviewing person. If you have an affect, then somehow you care. Well, and let's talk about the affect, because this is one of the things that troubles me so much about what we perceive is going to make us significant or newsworthy. This idea that there's a particular way to perform our leadership or our emotion. And that is, as I think we're both saying, actually born out of anything but authenticity. It is about hustling for other people's votes, approval, empathy, power, whatever it is, yeah. rather than taking a breath and a beat and not worrying so much about if we speak the truth the way that we really see it, how might that actually create a society that we're proud to be a part of and one that we want to leave behind to generations after us, rather than what am I going to lose if I tell the truth? Well, we need to take that last phrase and put it right. I mean, you said that so well. That was so well said. I mean, really, we're talking about the evolution of humankind here. Well, the conversation that we're having appears at once that we're just talking about being on stage or something like that. But no, I mean, the issue is the validity of the message to actually affect the lives of human beings moving forward. I mean, that's really what we're talking about. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on board to share the depth and the understanding that you have here, Alexia, because you've just done a great job. And I think your book is, you know, really going to be very well accepted. I mean, I don't know what's, what's happening with it right now, but it, it sounds so interesting. I mean, honestly, it's, it's one of those things we've got to get out there even more because the way you're talking about this whole thing of having the moxie, it's kind of light. But when you really get right down to it, you're serious as the dickens about, we're going to be casual about this, but I'm just popping the door open being casual here. We're going to get down to what's actually going on inside the barn. This is not opening the door. This is going in and let's clean the barn out. Let's get down to something. here. I don't know if I've ever heard anyone phrase it that way. I love it. Well, it's the bucolic. It's it's a a serious message, and yet it demands us to not be over earnest and to lose the playfulness of having brave conversations. Because the moment anything feels difficult or heavy 
or like we have to tiptoe to make sure we don't offend anyone. We don't do the work. Nothing mm -hmm. changes. And yeah. the book, my work in general, I try to live, play, speak, coach in that sweet spot between earnestness and self-reference, like being able to recognize mm -hmm. that there's funny things here, but it's serious work that needs to be done. Again, so well said. Thank you so much for coming on board. Now, listen, if you have any other idea of something you want to say to our audience, you just give us a call and we'll put you on again. You know, like Aww, if you, thank you. If you have a wrinkle of, hey, this is another thing that occurred to me. You know, or we're doing this and that and the other thing. We just want to tell your people about it. We'd be happy to have you come back on. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it. And thank you to everyone who's listening. You would make me so happy if you'll take one thing we talked about today and really make it a habit. Go out and do it. Don't let this be an episode where you listened and you thought, oh, that was interesting. Hopefully you thought something was interesting. And then you don't do anything with it. Our world changes when we change and we take action on the things that matter to us. And then practice. And practice. Role play. One of my favorite expressions, practice doesn't make perfect, but practice does make permanent. Oh, that's a good statement. I like that. It's not mine. I've heard it from otherwise. Okay. Well, it I like definitely it works. <laughs> Well, Alexia, thank you so much. Oh, listen, tell us, leave the last, as we leave here, where should people try to get hold of it? I think we said it earlier, yeah. but if you want to say it again, that'd be great. So if you are so moved, you can grab a copy of Step Into Your Moxie, Amplify Your Voice, Visibility, and Influence in the World at Amazon, Target.com, Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold. And I've also created a page on my website, try to keep it simple, stepintoyourmoxie.com. So if you do pick up a copy, I've created a bunch of virtual thank you goodies. Everything from how to have these conversations with people in your life via a book club to a live uh, virtual event I'm doing to help people with their negotiation skills. And you can enter your receipt number, grab all those bonuses at stepintoyourmoxie.com. Gee, that sounds great. Thanks again. That's thank great. You. you have a good one, Alexia. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Corbrain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because, as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications like those written for ADHD are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.